The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 69 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. Since my diagnosis, I never cease to be amazed by the questions people ask me, often in the name of an article they read or something someone somewhere told them. I was asked about my level of physical fitness, what I eat, my surgical and treatment choices, you name it, I've been asked it. I learned over the years to take the advice with a grain of salt and ask questions if the information sounded, let's say, questionable. If you're a survivor or a caregiver, you've likely experienced this as well. It can be tricky to navigate these types of conversations, especially when, of course, we want to make the absolute best choices on our journey, and often the information is very confidently shared, even if the source was maybe a little less than straightforward. So today I want to share a bit about how to better understand news articles that we may hear or print news or magazine articles that we may read and what to look for in terms of the actual research that these reports are coming from. It's actually not that different from those cues we learned in grade school when writing. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. So let's start with the who. Here are some who questions to ask when you're looking at reporting. Who is doing the reporting? Who provided the story to the outlet? What news outlet is this coming from? Is it a scientific journal? Is it a gossip newspaper? Like, who's doing the reporting? And then who provided that story to them? Who benefits from it? Who benefits from the story? And who paid for the research? If it's a study finding that's being reported, who actually commissioned that research and paid for that research to take place? And last, who participated? Who were the people who were actually participating in the study as the subjects? It's always important to remember the who can tell us a lot about what we might expect to see in the results. It can also give us some indicators as to whether or not it might be biased. And the reality is that unless a study is structured to have participants randomly assigned to comparison groups and those assignments are blinded or unknown to the people conducting the study and presenting the data, the risk of bias somewhere definitely exists. And When we know the who, it may alert us to other questions that we may want to be asking. Also, it's good to know about the participants. Did they seek out the study? Are they healthy and volunteering to participate? Or are they at the end of their treatment options with an otherwise terminal disease? The who really matters. Like in the case of COVID-19 trialing that was done early on, Most of those people were younger, healthier people who volunteered to participate in the study. And that may have longer-term effects for what we see overall in terms of the efficacy rates. Because knowing that the people who volunteered self-selected in and were otherwise really healthy is an important component to understand. 
And when I was struggling with tamoxifen and I was looking at the research, I asked one of my nurses if it was really a 1.35% overall recurrence rate that they were seeing based on information that was included with my medication every month. And I wanted to know if I was reading the research properly. And the nurse said, yes, we don't want you to be the 1.35%. And I responded with a question of, do those 1.35% of people who had a recurrence look like me? Are they my age? Are they my stage? Were they my type of breast cancer specifically? Did they pursue the same treatment protocols that I pursued? Who are they? And basically, in this generalized data information sheet that they provide, those details were not present. That level of detail wasn't present. And she really didn't have the answer for me either. So understanding the who is always a really great place to start. So now I'm going to move on to what. And this is a really good one. We want to ask questions like, what type of study was done? Was it the gold standard of an experimental study with hundreds of randomized participants divided into comparison groups or with a control group? Or was it a case report with one case that's being described? Or was it a cross-sectional study, which is a really small number of participants looking at a very specific condition And in those cases, the condition is generally a requirement for inclusion in the study. So all of your people will have that that condition, um, and they're usually looking for some kind of cause and effect. So they're looking to prove a cause and effect relationship. So also, what is the study looking for? Are they looking for a cause and effect relationship? Do they have a hypothesis that they're checking? And what is that hypothesis? What was the goal of the article or the report? What data was collected? Did people answer a paper survey or participate in interviews or have one or more medical exams? What data analysis took place and what data interpretation methods were used to assess the data that was collected? And were there gaps? in the data that was collected? Were there things that that you would expect to see that maybe you're not seeing? So I'll walk through a little bit longer example of these in a few minutes, but I wanna move on to when. So when it comes to medical research, the timeline of the research may be really long. So something being reported on today may have begun a decade or more ago. So the first question we have to ask is, when did this research take place? And when was the initial article published? I often see a lymphedema report from 2004 that talks about people being at risk for lymphedema should not wear a sleeve preventatively because that has been found to actually cause lymphedema. So you're at risk for lymphedema, but you haven't been diagnosed with lymphedema. Wearing a sleeve could cause lymphedema. This report, while still referenced prolifically, has been found to not be accurate. It was also a really small study. I think it was like 100 people that they had followed. And we now believe that properly fitted garments worn 
correctly, do not cause lymphedema, and depending on the circumstances of flying or other situations, they may very likely be beneficial in preventing it from onset or from progressing from a really early stage to a more advanced stage. So this is where time really matters. Because if we're looking at an article from 2004 in 2021, what other research exists for this topic? And those are really good questions to ask. So my next question is, where? Where can I get the source data? If you read an article that references research, it's really good practice to drill down to the original research. The lymphedema article that I referenced is a really good example. And also, where did the research take place? Under what guidelines or regulations? Did the research take place in the EU? Did it take place in Australia, Japan, the United States? Where did the research take place and what were the guidelines or regulations under which it was performed? Having these answers may also help us to answer the previous question of when, because often articles may be reaching back to something published in the past because some current event is making the topic relevant again. You may recall back in 2019 the discussion about breast implants and the breast implants that were pulled from the shelves. And when my reconstruction was being planned in the spring of 2017, my surgeon and I had discussed this. There were already concerns circulating about those implants, and the European Union had already banned them from use. It wasn't until two years later that Canada and the United States took action to take them off the market. And at that time, I was really surprised by how many people were commenting that they had gotten them in that intervening time frame from when I had been making my choices to that time in 2019, because it was just not a new concern that had just cropped up. It was something that had come up years before and was now resurfacing because more action was being taken. So this then brings us to why. Why was the research conducted? Is there a new innovation being tested? Is there more information known, like in the case of the breast implants that were removed from the market? Is the innovation being tested against a current treatment or no treatment at all? Is it being tested against something to create a comparison group or is it being tested on its own? And this may be the toughest why of them all. Why should we care about the results? That is always a good and valid question to ask. So if some of the other answers are less than satisfactory, the answer may be that we don't actually care about the results because they may or may not be significant when it comes to our situation. And there's another item that comes into play here when it comes to research. And within the field of research, there's this idea of internal validation and external validation. So how valid a study is within the study itself, and then how the study results actually translate to the general public. 
how it actually translates to us as regular humans walking around. How, what do those people look like? What was their age, their physical condition, all those things? Do the people who were in the study reflect a general population? So that also brings us back to why should we care? And finally, we have the how. And this is pretty straightforward. How was the study structured? How was the research financed? How was the data collected, analyzed, and reported on? And does it make sense? Does the data collection and the analysis and the mechanisms for reporting, do they make sense? And how were the participants selected? Were they paid? How were the researchers compensated and by who? This is in no way applying anything nefarious. Really, all I'm getting to here is if a pharmaceutical company is testing a new medication for a specific purpose and their own researchers are doing the research, there is a risk of an implicit bias in what they're hoping for or expecting to see in the results. So the who, what, where, when, why, how of the thing really matters. So I want to use the example of a two-and-a-half-minute video clip that was shared in a breast cancer forum a while back as an example of why we may need to dig a bit deeper when we hear a story or see claims about a treatment or procedure. The clip was highlighting a company who's testing cryoblation therapy for breast tumors. Basically, this two-and-a-half-minute video stated that if this technology is approved for use with breast cancer patients, it would be a seemingly low invasive procedure, saving patients from surgery, leaving minimal scarring, reducing healing time, and overall speeding recovery. And I'll be honest, in the breast cancer world, surgeries can be really impacting, both physically and emotionally. Therefore, when survivors struggling with chronic pain, restrictive movement from scar tissue, and the emotional challenges of having lost a part of themselves hear about a procedure like this, it sounds like a life-changing innovation. At the time I saw it, I commented that cryoblasion techniques have been being used for treatment of tumors for at least 15 years. I have a friend that had a kidney tumor, and that was the approach that they took to treating it. Now, one big difference between breast tumors and kidney tumors is that kidney tumors do not generally metastasize to other parts of your body. As a person whose imaging appeared to be early stage with no lymphatic involvement, but was later found after my surgery that my cancer was not stage one as expected, but stage 2B, meaning that my primary tumor was larger than two centimeters and I had two positive lymph nodes. This approach was one that I would really want to see a lot more data on because imaging is not really foolproof and there's a lot of opportunity for things to not 100% appear as they are. So at the time of the article, this is how the who, what, when, where, how, and why appeared in that two-and-a-half-minute clip without digging any further than just the words in the video. The who and where were 400 women in Japan and 200 in the United States 
had received this treatment and had been participating in studies to validate the technology. The what was low-risk early-stage tumors. And this seemed really vague to me. What is low risk and what qualified as early stage? Because technically, my 2B is collectively considered an early stage. And then when? It appeared the Japanese study was had concluded. However, the U.S. study was ongoing as part of an FDA approval process. And it started in around 2014. So the how... And this was where really the meat of the article basically talked about the tumor will be injected with a solution to freeze the tumor, basically causing the tumor to die, a pseudo-natural death. And then the hope is that the body, as it cleans out the dead and dying cells, that it learns that those types of cells are bad. And the further hope is that the immune system will create a response that may help to prevent this type of tumor from recurring in the future. So that was basically what was incorporated into that original article. So then I started to dig a little further. I started with a Google search for the procedure, and what I found was a page of entries all belonging to the device manufacturing company, which was a little bit telling because there's not a lot of news outlets that are reporting on this particular piece of technology. So here's how the items shook out under a bit of scrutiny. The who and where. I could not find the data on the 400 participants in Japan. I didn't dig super, super far, but it was not readily available. In the U.S., it's actually 197 participants whose average age is 75. There are several respected medical institutions who are recruiting patients and performing the procedures. But I thought it was really interesting that the average age was 75. So what exactly is the qualifying guideline for eligibility? This is where it got limiting and explained that average age of 75 very well. In order to qualify, the tumor had to either be benign or an actual tumor less than two centimeters. And that tumor also had to be HER2 negative and hormone positive. So this is who would not be eligible. Triple negative breast cancer patients. This is generally an aggressive form of breast cancer and only low-grade tumors can qualify. HER2 positive breast cancer patients like myself, Similar to triple negative, HER2 positive has the potential to be aggressive and metastatic and therefore not a candidate in this case. There are a lot of great targeted treatments that do somewhat similar. They specifically target the tumors, but not this particular process. And DCIS patients, people who don't actually have a tumor. In DCIS patients, there is no tumor. It's usually a grouping of cells in the ducts that have not fully formed into a tumor. This is often called stage zero. So folks in that category also don't apply. 
So the average age is starting to really make sense because hormone-positive breast cancer found in early stage, really low grade, meaning it's not super aggressive, is much more common the older we are. So more aggressive cancers are most often found in younger patients, and in this case, younger is anyone under 60. So the when in this case is the U.S.-based research started in 2014. And the why was the device company is working through the FDA requirements to get the device covered by Medicare and insurance providers, which makes sense given the average age of the study participants are over the age of 65. The how was pretty much exactly as described in the video. So by digging one level deeper, we find that even if this is approved, it would likely not have been super applicable to any of the folks in that particular group. And that's disappointing because when we hear breakthrough treatment for early stage breast cancer minimally invasive, showing similar risks for recurrence to more invasive commonly used procedures, we want to believe that someday soon people who look like us will be spared the invasive procedures that we've endured. And unfortunately, in this case, that just doesn't look to be true. There's one other area of study that I want to really briefly comment on, because I think it's one that we need to kind of watch out for. And that's the topic of food. There are a lot of quote-unquote scientific studies on the benefits of food to cure illness. And here's the thing. Those studies appear to be taking place without control groups. Harvard has been trying to undertake an experimental randomized study in this area. And one of the biggest challenges that they're encountering is that there are not really people who are willing to simply forego all options of treatment and only improve their diet. In the absence of this, food will never be fully tested to be ruled as a possible treatment option on its own. So make no mistake, diet is important. But if someone says they converted to raw food and did low-dose chemo or a targeted therapy, that was not only changing their diet, but they also pursued some kind of treatment. It may be different from what might be recommended in a traditional oncology practice, but likely some type of treatment was done nonetheless. So hopefully the episode today is providing you with some food for thought when it comes to being more curious consumer of information. There is a lot of information out there and having some questions to ponder can really help us navigate the information overwhelm. So that's my episode for this week. I have some great interviews coming up. If you have a story that you would like to share, you can connect with me in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Many of my past guests are there, along with other people just like you who may even have the same questions you do. At the top of the group, there's a pinned post where you can also schedule a coffee chat with me for us to connect via Zoom or a phone call. I hope to connect with you soon. Thanks for listening and have a great week.